We are going to be in Second Chronicles, uh, chapters 14, 15, and 16. Let's pray. Now, Lord God, as we open up your word, as we seek to learn and understand the message that you have for us, I pray for your guidance and for your direction. Lord, your word is powerful and strong, and nothing that is written in your word is there by accident. And so as we dig into the life of Asa, I pray that you would encourage us and strengthen us through the lessons we can learn. In your name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Howard Hendricks, who taught at Dallas Seminary for many, many years, and a man that I I used to listen to all of the tapes and stuff that he did at conferences just because it was such an encouragement to me. I remember one time he told a story that when he first arrived at Dallas, there was a lot of the real big names that you, that are out there with books and stuff that were still on the faculty. And, and he went to his first faculty prayer meeting, and he's this little young guy who's, you know, doesn't know anything compared to these guys that have been there for years and years. And he said uh, he was almost too scared to pray, but they're getting together, they're bowing their heads, and then he heard Dr. Chafer, who wrote Chafer Systematic Theology, and a number of others, pray this, Lord, keep me from becoming a dirty old man. Honest prayer, huh? And that's what struck him. I mean, he, he said he almost fell off his chair, first of all. Um, but then he started thinking about it, and he thought, how honest is that, that someone could say, I want to finish well in every way. I want to finish well. And that's really what we're looking at here with, with Asa today, is the whole idea that it isn't just how you start that's important, but it's also how you continue and how you finish. Um, as you go through uh, and see various aspects of the kings be watching for that did they start well and did they end well did they finish well did they all the way through follow the lord or didn't they if you're running a marathon it's important to keep a steady pace and it's important to finish to start well but finishing well is really what you have to do if you're going to win any kind of a marathon Uh, not because i've run them but because i've got friends who have run them so anyway the, the the fact that this really points to something spiritually for us is is so critical. Uh, look around the, the the landscape at people who have been in ministry many years, and we have the right to ask the question: Are they finishing well? And for those like me who are now on that back end of it, rather than just coming into it, the question I need to constantly asking myself is: Am I finishing well? I don't know when the finish line will be, but when it when I cross it, will I have run the race the way I'm supposed to? So as we look at different things, different kings from first from the kings and the chronicles in the next few weeks, one of the things that one of the things that was done in these books was to evaluate each king. And so they evaluated the kings on three basically three things. Let's go ahead and put those up there, Sarah. Did they worship the God of Israel alone? Did they purge Israel of idolatry? And did they remain faithful to the covenant? And, and you would think that this one about idolatry wouldn't be that big a deal, but if you remember, when Joshua was getting ready to help them go into the, into the promised land, or maybe it was just after, and he said to them, 
the whole idea that you need to get rid of the gods that you brought with you all the way from way back. And you need to make up your mind, are you going to serve the Lord God? Because as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And that was, but I remember reading it the first time thinking, what? He's talking about the gods they brought all the way from, from way back in Babylonia, in that area. They had carried them all the way to Egypt. And I'm not talking about big, huge stone thing, but they, like I said, many of the household gods were just little tiny things. And so idolatry was constantly something they had to fight. And just kind of take a look at Solomon, if you will. You've got Saul, who did badly, David, who, with whom we measure all the rest of the kings, and then Solomon, and he started really well. But if you were going to evaluate Solomon by these three questions, did he worship the God of Israel alone? Uh, no, he did at the beginning. And then at the end of his life, he was worshiping the gods of some of his pagan wives. Did he purge Israel of idolatry? Well, at the beginning, they were, they were doing really well because David had done that. And, and he followed up by building the temple and, and dedicating the temple. And then he started to build little shrines and things for some of his wives and begin to worship in those ways. Did he remain faithful to the covenant at the beginning? Yeah. But at the end of his life, no, not so much. So Solomon, again, one of those guys that started well, dedicated the temple, led with wisdom, led the nation into times of amazing prosperity, the expansion of the, of the land that they had, and then disobedience hit. In 1 Kings 11, it says, Solomon loved many foreign women, and they did turn his heart away from the Lord. What a sad way to end uh, a life. So let's go ahead and look at the next chart just very quickly. So we've got... <clears throat> You got the period of, of the judges, and then you got Saul, David, and Solomon with the United Kingdom. And then, because Solomon passed on to his son Rehoboam, absolutely nothing of value that we can discover. Rehoboam continued the, the downward spiral of, of sin, and um, there was a big split at that point. Ten tribes went north and followed Jeroboam, and two tribes followed Rehoboam in the south. And and so as you're going along, you're seeing some of these kings along here. And then you, today we're going to be talking about Asa, who's the third one in. <clears throat> and it's interesting to me, if you go back and you look at all of the different kings, Jeroboam took ten tribes, and it's called the northern kingdom. Rehoboam took the two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, the southern kingdom. In Israel, they had 20 kings, zero good, 20 bad. In Judah, and again, go back to the three criteria I just gave you. In Judah, they had eight good kings and 12 not so good. And so while we are taking a look, we will look at a couple of the ones that were terrible. Most of it, we're going to take some time to study those who honored and sought to serve the Lord in the way they were supposed to. So today, we're jumping from David all the way past Solomon, past Rehoboam, and past Abijam to Asa, and that's where we're going to start in chapter 14 of Second Chronicles. <clears throat> so just kind of jump right in at verse 2. Asa did what was pleasing and good in the sight of the Lord his God. Isn't that a great way to start? And so you've got a king here who is immediately, at the beginning especially, is saying, hey, he, he did what God wanted him to do. And go ahead and put that chart up there. Matter of fact, to just put it in a chart for you, this is what he did. He removed the pagan altars. There were no altars except those that were for the Lord God. The temple, and there were a couple places other where they allowed 
the worship of God, but it was a t- special, special altar. He removed the high places. These are places that were set aside to worship the Canaanite gods. And it could be at a hilltop or a grove of trees. And, and so they removed, he removed the high, t- the high places. He smashed the sacred pillars. In some of these places, there were arrangements of stones that were there that were part of the rituals that they did. And, and, he, and he also cut down the Asherah poles. There were wooden poles that were carved and made. And they were there as fertility symbols. And it was associated again with all of those things that the Canaanite gods uh, expected of their people. And then he also removed all the incense altars. It tells us in Kings that he also um, got rid of all of the, the, the men and women who were prostitutes for their gods. Because they had you know, prostitutes who were there to serve their gods in that, in that way. So he's doing this. This is good stuff. This is what you want a king to do. So Asa's kingdom enjoyed a period of peace. Why? Because he was leading the people in their pursuit of God. And that's really, if you remember, we went back to Judges. What was it that they wanted coming out of the time of the Judges? We want a king who will unify us and help us to follow God with all of our hearts. And we want a king that will also lead us in battle when we need to fight enemies. Well, you look at Asa and you go, okay, well, with Asa, this is, this is good. It's working. Um, <clears throat> so verse 6, and during those peaceful years, he was able to build and fortify all these towns. And so... Um, what did he do? He went to all of the areas around cities that had walls. Maybe they didn't have tall enough ones or they didn't have enough places to, to actually protect themselves from. So he fortified all of Judah and strengthening each town in, in, its, in, a, in a way to make them um, to be able to fight against the enemy if the enemy came against them. And then, of course, it says, for the Lord was giving him rest from his enemies. And that's the hand of God working in a nation whose king has decided, I'm going to follow God and God alone, and I'm going to bring the people along with me. I want them to follow God with me. Then in verse 9, and again, this is one of those things where you wish you had a little bit more detail, but it says, once an Ethiopian named Zerah, attacked Judah with an army of a million men and 300 chariots, and they advanced to the town of Meribesh. Go ahead and put that map up there. Thank you. Um, so you've got that, that Hebrew word for that's translated a million by most translations. Really, it is, it is the phrase 1,000 1,000s. And so I don't know if you multiply that. I, you know, I'm not a math guy. But most of the translations that ended up with it was a... It was a you know, a million men who came in that particular army. That's a lot of people. But 300 chariots is even scarier. In that time frame, that was the, that was the motorized tank of the day. I mean, you know, if you had an iron chariot and you had a whole bunch of those, there are things you could do that another army could not do. And so they came with multitude of people coming in. They had all of these chariots and stuff. So... Esau, says in verse 10, deployed his armies for battle in the valley north of Marissa. And so these guys came from down here. They came through Philistia. And then this is where they've, they're going to have the battle. They've set their battle lines on opposite sides of this area. And he brings down with him, we see from, the, from this passage, that he brought down 300,000 warriors from Judah that had large shields and spears. And then he had 280,000 men from Benjamin that had smaller shields and bows. And so that was, that was a thing. And it tells us in, in verse 8 that both armies were really well trained. And so you've got, these are, these are warriors. These are fighting men who have lined up on opposite sides. 
Now, can you imagine what it must have been like for for Asa to stand maybe on a hill somewhere and look out towards the enemy's camp? I mean, a million. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of soldiers. That's a lot of tents. And he's out there looking at all this. And, and he knows that he's probably got an army half the size. And it's not even counting the chariots. I love what Asa does. Look at verse 11. Then Asa cried out to the Lord his God. O Lord, no one but you can help the powerless against the mighty. Help us, O Lord our God, for we trust in you alone. It is in your name that we have come against this vast horde. O Lord, you are our God. Do not let mere men prevail against you. Isn't that cool? And I put it up as as a little bit of a chart, just kind of look through it really quickly. Asa prayed. And this is a passionate prayer. This isn't just, uh, I'm going to pray through the list and kind of click off the things that I want God to do. This is passionate. He says, God, if you don't do something, we're, we're in trouble. We're in deep trouble here. Help us. You're the only one who can help us. If you don't help us, we're dead. I mean, that's really the, the depth of the prayer. And he says, by the way, it's in your name that we come. We come because it's we're representing you and, the, and your people and your nation. And he says, don't, don't let mere men prevail. Don't let them win. Don't let your name be dragged through the mud because they won this battle or this war. In verse 12, I love how this goes. And so the Lord defeated, the Lord defeated or struck down the Ethiopians in the presence of Asa and the army of Judah and the enemy fled. Now, again, don't you wish you had a little more detail? <laughs> I'm sitting there trying to picture this in my mind. How did this go? I got the lines. You got all these people coming together. This says the Lord defeated. Doesn't it sound like Asa was involved at this point, other than maybe watching? The Lord defeated the Ethiopians in the presence of Asa and the army of Judah, and the enemy fled. The enemy fled. And so Asa and the army pursued them at that point. They pursued them as far as Gerar. Uh, so many Ethiopians fell, they were unable to turn around and rally. Um, they were destroyed or crushed by the Lord and his army. And the army of Judah carried off vast amounts of plunder. Isn't that incredible? Think about what happened here. So you've got this insurmountable foe. You've got this army that should just roll over the top of Israel, right over the top of the southern kingdom. And Asa does what he's supposed to do. He says, God, it's your kingdom. What are you going to do? <laughs> it's almost as if God said, eh, just watch. Just watch. And we don't know what God did, but he, a whole army of a million people disappeared. And they chased him down, and there were no survivors as far as we know. Verse 11, he prays that prayer. Verse 12, the Lord defeated or struck down. And, and, and I, you sit back and you go, wow, that's an absolute incredible. Just an implication here from this. I love the, the prayer, and I kind of put it together from the phrases of those two of that verse. Oh Lord, no one but you can help the powerless. You ever felt powerless? Help us, for we are we trust in you alone. God, I'm not trying to do this alone. I'm not trying to go out there and fight this army. I know I can't do it. 
What are you facing that you can't do alone? That's okay. And you are our God. Don't let mere men overcome you. Lord God, we represent you. I don't know about you, but uh, maybe you've had that feeling that all is lost and that there's not a whole lot of hope. Or perhaps you're wondering if God even cares about your situation. I've been there at times. And you've prayed and you've trusted, but it doesn't seem to be an answer. Believers, men and women down through the centuries have had that same experience. Have gotten to that point where they stop and they say, God, where are you? What are you going to do? If you don't come through, God, nothing's going to happen here. I love the fact that we've got God's Word to turn to because when it comes to things like that, we can... We can go to things like the Psalms, places like the Psalms, and we begin to, to look at some of the prayers and songs that were written by people who were going through horrendously difficult things. And yet they show us how to focus our hearts on God. Um, listen to what David said. And, and David, if you remember, lived these kinds of things, and he wrote prayers and songs in the midst of those struggles, some of those psalms he wrote apparently even on the eve of things that happened that were incredible the next day. But Psalm 61 says, Oh God, listen to my cry. Hear my prayer. From the ends of the earth I cry to you for help when my heart is overwhelmed. Have you ever felt overwhelmed? Uh, you know, maybe half a dozen times a week I feel overwhelmed. I'm sitting there thinking, God, what am I going to do? cry to you for help when my heart is overwhelmed. Lead me to the towering rock of safety coming from a, a warrior in that time frame. If you had the high ground, nobody could touch you. You had the high ground and you were up on a rock that nobody could scale, then you were safe. And that's what he's saying. Take me to the place of safety. And he says, for you are my safe refuge, a fortress where my enemies cannot reach me. So he says, Take me to that tower of safety. And then he reminds himself, oh, that's right. God is my tower of safety. He is my refuge. He is where I go where no one can touch me. Let me live forever in your sanctuary beneath the shelter of your wings or essentially in your presence safe. That's what he's saying. I want to be. I don't know about you, but when I feel overwhelmed and I don't see a lot of hope and I think God is purposely ignoring me, and I say that, I know He isn't, but it feels like that sometimes, you know. When I see only darkness and no light and when I wonder where all the joy has gone, many times I go to the book of Psalms. And Psalms is where you read and you understand that you're not the only person has felt what you're feeling. You're not the only one who's gone through what you've gone through. And I find many times that as I read the Psalms or as I, I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, sometimes a song will come to mind that, that I can sing. And many times that's, that's what it takes for me to begin to refocus my heart and my soul on the Lord. And so I'm going to do something here. I, I don't know that I do very often. I don't do it very often at all. We're going to sing a song together. Um, because as I was studying and praying and working through this, this song from the Psalms came to me. And if you know it, I'd really appreciate it if you'd sing with me. <clears throat> and if you don't, fake it, okay? <laughs> 
if you know the echo, feel free to put that in. Unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. Unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. Oh my God, I trust in thee. Let me not be ashamed, let not my enemies triumph. singing that. <clears throat> and by the way, it's a good one. It's a good, right out, of, right out of Psalm 25. You know, none of us are going to face a million man army this week. Or 300 chariots. Just, I can guarantee that's not going to happen for you. But you may be facing some things that are hard. That's okay. And to thee, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Let's go ahead and keep going. Let's jump into chapter 15. I love, I love the, the whole aspect of his prayer there. And in chapter 15, you've got the prophet Azariah who went out to meet the king and the army as they're coming back. And he uh, is a very kind of a fiery guy as you read through this passage, you see. And um, the people respond. You know, uh, the, the king has shown spiritual leadership. He's shown leadership as a, as a warrior. And um, so now there's a challenge from the prophet that they, as a, as a nation, that they seek the Lord and seek to find him. And, and it says in verse 8, When Asa heard this message from Azariah the prophet, he took courage and removed all of the detestable idols from the land of Judah and Benjamin. 
and in the towns he had captured in the hill country of Ephraim. And he repaired the altar of the Lord, which stood in front of the room to the temple. So you've got all these amazing things going on. They win this battle, and as a result of that, they are challenged to to follow the Lord even more closely. Listen, God has just shown you who he is and what he can do. Now it's time for you to keep going in that same direction, to keep on pursuing God. And in verse 9, he says, Then Asa called together all the people of Judah... And Benjamin, along with the people of Ephraim and Manasseh and Simeon, who had settled there. So apparently, you know, he's got the two tribes. Well, when he's following the Lord like this, there are people in the other tribes that are saying, hey, down there, they're actually following God. And so they moved into southern Israel, moved into Judah, the southern kingdom. And so he calls them all together. When they, And in verse 12, it says, they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord, the God of their ancestors, with all their hearts and souls. Isn't that awesome? This is what the king was supposed to do. Bring the people together and encourage and challenge and say, listen, let's follow God together. Come with me. Let's follow God. And so they shouted out their oath of loyalty to the Lord with trumpets blaring and ram's horn sounding. I think I'd love to have just heard that. No idea what that sounds like even. You got trumpets and ram's horns and people shouting. And what are they shouting? They're shouting, hey, we want to serve and follow God with all of our hearts. And so they're making that whole covenant again with God that they made in Moses' time. Verse 15, all in Judah were happy about the covenant, for they had entered into it with all of their hearts. What could be better than entering into a covenant to to love, honor, and worship, and serve God than entering into it with all of your heart and all of your desire and longing to do those things which you say that you want to do? So all of Judah did this with all of their hearts. And they earnestly sought after God, and they found Him. Isn't that great? We are told over and over and over in Scripture that if you search for God and pursue God, you will find God, you will find him, and God wants to be found. And the Lord gave them rest from their enemies on every side. And so they entered into that covenant. They entered into the whole idea of renewing what they did with Moses way back at Sinai. And so here they are renewing all of those things. And to show you how serious Asa is about this, look at verse 16. Now they've done the covenant. And King Asa even deposed his grandmother, Makah, for her position as, from her position as queen mother. Why did he do that? She had made an obscene Asherah pole. So here, in the queen mother, and apparently queen grandmother in this case, has been there, and she has been worshiping the gods of Canaan. And she's carved her own Asherah pole, which is, even the pole itself apparently was obscene. And what does he do? He cuts down her obscene pole, broke it up, and burned it in the Kidron Valley, and deposed her. She had no authority any longer in the kingdom. None. You have to deal with family. Sometimes it's hard, isn't it? It was just grandma. But grandma was worshiping idols and trying to get other people to worship idols with her. And he was serious enough about God to say, you know what, this can't go on, even if it is grandma. This has got to stop. And so he did what he needed to do. And the result, verse 19, there was no more war until the 35th year of Asa's reign. Okay, so you've got this, this 
huge war, and then from that war there's a, there's a renewal of the covenant, a renewal of their pursuit of God, and a following after Him in obedience like never before. And God answers that and brings peace to them for a period of time. I wonder, I was thinking especially of the fact that what it cost Asa with his grandmother and, and maybe even other family members who wouldn't, uh, wouldn't have liked what he did. Can our families and our friends tell that we're serious about our walk with the Lord? Uh, and I'm not talking about merely, mere external things, you know, like if you wear a white shirt and a dark tie, well, then you're a good Christian. That's not what I'm talking about, because right? we know that isn't true. But our attitudes and the way we treat other people, the way we speak, do those things show others who we belong to? They should. They really should. And that's a, that was one of the lessons from Asa here is that you've got Asa who comes home and he says, okay, we're committed to following God. I can't allow this to continue. This has got to end. This idolatry here in Jerusalem ends now. Verse 12 says, they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord, the God of all their ancestors. Go ahead and put that one up there, sir. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> they entered into the covenant to seek the Lord, the God of their ancestors, with all of their heart and with all of their soul. And Jesus answered that same question, didn't he, at one point, when someone says, hey, what's the greatest command? He says, I'll give it to you. He says, love the Lord your God with all your soul, all your strength, all your mind, and all your heart, and your neighbor as yourself. Love God like that. And he says, you've encompassed all of the law. I was working in, in Ecuador as a single missionary for a time. Um, it was interesting to me to, to just be a part of learning what it meant to be a missionary, watching others and working alongside of others and trying to see what God might have for me and where I might fit in, and at the same time trying to be, a, be of a help. And I had an opportunity to be involved with the, with the Quechua people who were um, from the mountains but had settled in the lowlands, and some of these folks had, had become Christians, and all of a sudden a church had, had just started and multiplied. And there's a whole group of these Kichwas from the mountains that were there in this area of, of the jungle, and they were doing incredibly in every way. And when they had before lived, they had worked just long enough to be able to get something to drink, and then they would go on a drunk and do incredibly horrible things to each other. But when the gospel came and started changing hearts and lives, it changed a whole section of this area. And all of these men and women were saved. And now all of a sudden they're, you know, they, they worked hard, but it wasn't working hard so that they could then spend it on something that was wasteful and sinful. And, and the culture changed. And all of a sudden you got people noticing, hey, there's a group of people here that are doing some amazing things. You know, they cared for each other. And if somebody was hurt or hurting, they came in and they cared for that person. But one of the things that struck me as I was working with these people, another part of it was that it was this way whether or not things were great, crops were wonderful and the cattle are, you know, reproducing well, but also when it was bad, when things that happened that were horrible. I was there when this happened. It was a... A group of the Kichwas were going down river. There were three huge, huge dugout canoes. They take 10, 15 people in these things with all their luggage and stuff. And they were going down river and there was going to be a conference with some other believers down river. 
And every now and then in some of these huge rivers that are the headway headwaters of the Amazon, there's um, a whirlpool. And sometimes they get really violent. And these folks are people who've been on the river. They, they have no issues with knowing what they're doing, and yet they hit the whirlpool and there's capsizing and people and all kinds of stuff all over the place. And then by the time they got everybody to shore, they discovered that they'd lost a lot of people. They lost husbands, wives, children. And a few weeks later, I had a chance to meet the pastor of that group that had been going downriver for this conference. And he had lost his wife and a son. It was, <clears throat> it was through very deep sorrow and grief that I saw the firm conviction. I believe God knows what he's doing, even in this. There's a man who sought after God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. When things were going great, yep, he did. When things weren't going so great, he still sought after God, because that's where the answers are. And when the Lord asked Peter, everybody was leaving. And Peter, he said to Peter, are you guys going to leave too? And Peter said, where, where can we go? You're the one that has the words of eternal life. And, and that's the reality. These folks entered into a covenant with the Lord, all of their hearts and souls, and that meant it was going to, it was going to impact other things. And, and, and this pastor and, and his family in that church showed us what that's all about in a very difficult, difficult way. Let's go to chapter 16 and see if we can finish up Asa's reign. It says in verse 1 of chapter 16, in the 36th year of Asa's reign. Now, I'm going to stop right there and let you know that if you go and study out the 36th year, this is a number that the manuscripts are, there's not any help there at all. Apparently it's not, it can't be 36th year. So there's something wrong with the numbering um, the Attempting to reconcile in all kinds of ways, but I'll just say that there is a problem with that, just the year part of it, not the rest of the, of the verse. But in Asa's reign, king of Basha of Israel invaded Judah and fortified Ramah in order to prevent anyone from entering and leaving King Asa's territory. So you got Asa, the king of Israel, up there in the north, and, and he decides that he's gonna, he's gonna actually put a stranglehold on, on Judah. And he's going to blockade everything so no one can travel through Judah any longer. So no caravans can come through and, and none of the stuff can happen that would normally happen in, when there's open trade going on. So he does that. And Asa's response, Asa responded by calling out to the God in prayer. Ah, you know, this is not at all like a million people in 300 chariots. But unfortunately, that's not what he did. Asa responded by removing silver and gold from the treasuries of the temple of the Lord and the royal palace. And he sent it to King Ben-Hadad of Aram, who was ruling in Damascus along with the message. And so this is, this is what's going on. Asa, you know, Basha's trying to, to trap him in this area, and so he's got these skirmishes going on with him, and he doesn't want to be in a war with Basha. And so he goes around him to the people of the north, and he says, hey, you know, 
Ben-Hadad, why don't we just have a treaty here? I'm going to send all of the silver and all of the gold from, from the temple and from the, from the palace. You take all of that and then break your treaty with Basha and make a treaty with me. And so you attack them on the north and then this will all get taken care of. And it worked. That's exactly what happened. Um, he took all the money out of the temple, all the money out of the royal treasury. Basha is um, attacked from the north. He realizes what's going on, so he moves out of the places that were, he was trying to blockade Judah. And then, verse 8, The prophet Hanai came to Asa and said, Don't you remember what happened to the Ethiopians and the Libyans and their vast army with all their chariots and charioteers? Hey, Asa, don't you remember? Remember all those people? Remember what God did? And the prophet says, At that time you relied on the Lord, and he handed them over to you. A million people, 300 chariots. He goes on to say, Prophets continues to speak. The eyes of the Lord search for the whole earth, search the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. So God's looking for that. People who are committed to Him. People who are seeking after Him. People who want to obey Him. And then He says, What a fool you have been. From now on, you will be at war. And, and you just kind of sit back and you read and you go, what? And, then, and of course, Asa responded, right, properly by repenting of his sin and turning back to God. Uh, no, no, he didn't. Look at what it says. Asa, verse 10, became so angry with Hanani for saying this that he threw him in prison and put him in stocks. Being a prophet wasn't always... <laughs> Something that was easy to do. And at that time, Asa also began to oppress some of his people. What happened to Asa? Verse 12. In the 39th year of his reign, Asa developed a serious foot disease. And yet even with the severity of his disease, he did not seek the Lord's help. But turned only to his physicians. Now, <clears throat> I've heard people actually really distort this and say, see, that, she's, you, you know, that means you just go to God. No, that's not what that meant. What it meant was that he should have gone to God and, and the physicians would have been going to God too. But he was in absolute agony and he would have nothing to do with God. And yet he is still rated as a, as a, as a good king because for a good portion of the time he... He did serve and follow the Lord. So he started really, really well. And then at the end, he just just finished poorly. What do we take away from this? For me, what I take away from this is the question, what happened to Asa? What happened to Asa? And quite honestly, I wish we knew. I wish the Scriptures would give us more light. I wish we would understand that this is what happened, and this is why it happened, and this is what he did. And, and, and in seeing that, we would say, okay, so now we know what needs to be done. I mean, stop and think about it. He'd seen God do incredible things. A million people just turned over to him. 
had peace on every side, prosperity that God had brought in on them. And yet he just turned his back on God in the end. I don't know about you, but I've seen this happen now to people that I know personally. Uh, Men or women who have been, some of them have been in Bible studies with me, part of the church. Some of them have gone on mission trips with me. And then something happens, and, and I don't always even know what it is. I try to find out that they turn their backs on God. I remember one guy in particular. Um, I really had spent quite a bit of time with him, and he'd been very helpful. And one day he came in and said, I'm, I'm leaving my wife. I want you to watch out for her. Walked away, and we never saw him again. Another guy was a pastor that I knew and had spent time with, and he decided that, just wasn't worth it. And he walked away. I know others who have been hurt deeply in some way and they wouldn't or couldn't or refused to get over what it was. They wouldn't work through. They wouldn't forgive. And their way of handling again was to just walk away. But you know, as I was thinking about this in the light of how do I finish well? How do we finish well? I started asking myself, why? What do I do or what can I do so that I don't ever do that? That's not what I want to do. That is not how I want to end. And I think part of what has to happen is just a constant sense of, Lord God, help me finish well. Lord God, help me to move forward in the directions that you've called me. Lord, help me to stay in your word. Lord Jesus, help me because I can't do this alone. There's got to be that constant sense of coming to God and saying, I can't do this. I can't live this life. I can't be a pastor. I can't be a husband or a father. I can't be those things without your help. I can't. So God, help me. And one of the passages that I find encouraging at all times this is what I want to end with here. Romans 8, 31-39. What then shall we say in response to this, and the response is to the fact that God works all things together for good. What do we say in response to that? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Think about that. He gave up his own son. Is there any reason for us to think that he is not continuing to watch over and care for and guide us? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has has chosen? It's God who justifies. Anybody who wants to can bring an accusation. The devil himself can accuse me of things. But God's the one who justified me through the blood of Jesus. Who is he that condemns? Well, you know, anybody who wants to can, but Christ Jesus who died and was raised to life, he's at the right hand of God and he's interceding for me. So he died for me, I was justified through his death, and he is continuing that process of interceding for me at God's right hand. That's what Jesus is doing. So the question, who can separate us from the love of God? The answer expected is no, but he's going to give us a little bit of detail. Shall trouble or hardship, persecution or famine, nakedness, danger or sword? 
No, none of those things. As it's written, for your sake we face death all day long. So even if we're facing death, even if we're considered as sheep to be slaughtered, you know what? It still isn't something that can separate me from the love of God. Verse 37, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In all those things, in all those things that we just mentioned, in all those things that that we asked about whether or not they could separate us from God. Well, they can't. Not only can't they separate us from God, we are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus who loved us. And he finishes with some incredible words. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That's where you go. And it's there that we need to constantly go back to when we say, Lord God, I'm struggling, I'm hurting, I'm doubting. I don't want to drift away. I don't want to slip away. I don't want to finish badly. Lord God, help me. Help me to be more than a conqueror through Jesus Christ. And we continue to pursue him in that way. We make that our prayer. Help me, Lord God, by your mercy, by your grace, help me to remain faithful. Help me to keep on trusting you. Keep me in your word. Keep me following you. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the fact that you you are all of the things that we mentioned. And you are a loving God who deals with us in all the ways that we need. Sometimes it's with discipline. and Sometimes it's with silence that you meet us. But it's not to hurt us. It's always to drive us closer to you. And so, my brothers and sisters here this morning and those that might be listening, Lord, I just pray that you would draw close to those that are really struggling. God, please help them to see that you're there. Help them to know that nothing, nothing can overpower you. We thank you for your mercy and for your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.